Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Go towards the people that are saying yes. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Ophira Eisenberg. Ophira is a stand-up comedian, writer, and host of NPR's nationally syndicated comedy trivia show and podcast, Ask Me Another. She's a regular host and teller on the Moth Radio Hour. Ophira's comedic memoir, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, was optioned for a feature film, and her comedy special, Inside Joke, is available on Amazon and iTunes. Ophira and I explore her journey as a comedian, writer, and storyteller, from Calgary to Montreal to New York City. Our conversation looked at how she approaches her craft and shifts her style based on the audience and venue. We dig into how our kids can be our toughest critics, nerd out on what constitutes proper poutine. Spoiler, if it's not from Quebec, it's not poutine. Ophira shares the importance of spending time with supportive collaborators who help you stretch and grow. I appreciated the opportunity to get her first-person account of Calgary's Stanley Cup victory in the 80s and the strength of Lanny McDonald's mustache game. It was an honor having Ophira join me on the show. You can find out more about Ophira on her website and catch Ask Me Another on NPR. Links are in the episode description. Thank you, Ophira, for your time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ophira, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Who am I? You know, I always find that difficult to answer in a way because I'm just jealous of people that answer with one word. They're like, I'm a, you know furniture designer or something and that's what they do uh but i uh, have a very unfocused career slash career identity i do i'm a stand-up comic uh actively i host most people know me as the host of a comedy trivia show on npr called ask me another because that's been going on for now eight years cannot believe it uh i also am a writer uh i wrote a memoir uh now seven years ago and constantly writing other little things here and there posting around and uh i also do storytelling which is a different kind of art whether whether it's for the moth or other storytelling shows or kind of i've done also the solo show format which is a lengthier piece yeah so that's who i am (laughs) no that's i i love it and uh one of the things i really appreciate about many of the guests is um I was talking to one one guest, and uh, she was talking about embracing the slash. That it, she's she's a musician slash comedian slash author. <laughs> you know, I feel like it used to be, especially when I started stand up, it used to be kind of looked down upon to be like the multi hyphenate or the slash. It kind of meant that maybe you weren't good enough at one of these things, so you had to pursue another one, or maybe 
you were indecisive and maybe you didn't really want to be say an author or whatever because in theory like you would have to spend all of your time on this one thing to be expert at it but i think as i think as the the world's changed in a positive way where you just go yeah but i have so, i have a thing that i'm i creatively want to express that does not fit in this category so where where do I put it? I mean, that's kind of how I ended up in the storytelling world. I had all this stand up material that I was like, I don't know if this is stand up material because it has other other levels to it. Where where do I put it? And I would put it on the stand up stage, and I would get criticized <laughs> by you know the audience. Who knows what they thought? But just yeah. bookers and people, tastemakers. <laughs> so and so yeah. Which uh, of of all of those do you know? Which one kind of uh, came first, or what you know? What sparked your interest uh, early in your career? Yeah, early in my career, I would say stand up came first. But early in my life, if I really look back, it was always writing. Uh, and you know, when you you were just saying uh, we were talking casually earlier that you have two kids, I feel like you really see you reflect on your own creative impulses and what you were into when you see your kids gravitating towards something at an early age because you go, oh, like right now my my kid, I I really think like has he's really into and has some potential visually like I was t t never a visual artist in any way all my drawings from now are stick figures he's already he's surpassed me a matter of fact my five-year-old son asked me to draw him a picture last night and so I did and he was like what what is that what and I was like it's a squirrel he was like is it half a duck I'm like you're five okay don't don't be a, a critic an art critic right now but it's because he's beyond me and I think looking back I was always doing creative writing I was always very into words uh, and even when I started stand-up I already I wasn't even writing jokes I was writing pieces these pieces I just didn't know what they were yeah I love it. I lo one one of the things here in Iowa City, uh, to, which you know, we have the Iowa Writers Workshop, and uh, when my daughter was in elementary school, uh, on on Fridays I could not pick her up early because she had writing club. She's like, Dad, you can't. And it, it was actually an extension of the Writers Workshop where graduate students will work. They were working with uh, elementary school kids on just honing their story craft. So yeah. Uh, and that, that's another one where I would be like, you, you're you struggling with art with your son. I think I'm struggling with telling a good story to my daughter. With <laughs> I mean, like, it, but also, I don't know what it was like for you growing up in school, but I do remember, like, I wrote a lot of stories. Where I'm thinking, like, grade five, grade six, like, those levels. And some of them were, remember, one being put up on the bulletin board outside. I got good marks of them. One was published at a little school, uh, enters, like, a bunch of different schools, um, booklet, but I really feel like no one encouraged me specifically, uh, and I'm bitter about it. Because <laughs> I do, I do feel like there are teachers that uh, I'm just around, and I and I'm always just in awe of people who are like, this is the one teacher that really told me like, hey, you should do this, and it ended up being what they. And I I never had one of those yeah. teachers. I felt like it was much more utilitarian. Like we're just trying to keep you on track to like get through <laughs> school. Who cares what you're good at? Are you good at anything? Question mark. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I had uh, similar. My high school was a pretty rough high school, uh, and uh, I felt like I was in the I was in this track where if you weren't creating too much trouble, you weren't stabbing people or eating your own hand. Your counselor had no reason to talk to you. <laughs> you know what? It's sort of funny. I went to a pretty academic high school, but I felt like if you weren't in that really high academic stream, because I think I, I was just below it, that they were just like, yeah, we're, we're just here to make sure that you don't disrupt things. Right. Like, we're looking forward to you leaving. How soon can you leave? And there, there, there's no big Hollywood aspirational film about the inspirational teacher that just made sure you showed up, right? That's right. You know what? There should be. There should be a, 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 some sort of uh, reality reality check of the teacher that's like, hey, I don't know what your potential is. I so got you a lot on my plate. You grew up in Canada. Uh, yeah, do you Calgary, still Do you still identify as Canadian? I do. You know, in, I would... I think this is a common thing that you would even identify more from where you came from once you are somewhere else. Right. But, you know, and this is not a criticism of America, but I feel like um, uh, the American identity is such that people are really uh, always talking about where they came from in a weird way. Like I would, I don't know, Schoolhouse Rock, do you remember Schoolhouse Rock? Yes, yes. So we, we watched it in Canada and there was this whole thing about the, the song for about the American melting pot, the American <laughs> melting pot. And then I remember in, I don't know, whatever it was, high school social studies, learning that America was a melting pot and Canada's um, uh, was multiculturalism. And that was the difference. But I actually think it's different. I think it's actually in reverse. I think America, in its best sense is very multiculturalism where it i think you are you're even asked to celebrate your own culture whether that comes with whatever it comes from in these kind of politically and culturally divided moments but in its best case you you know that i don't remember parades or celebrations maybe a little bit uh growing up that were based on where people immigrated from i felt like that was a newer thing interesting and uh, we are roughly the same age, and I, I identify as spiritually Canadian. Uh, so I, <laughs> if you don't mind, I have a couple Canada questions for oh, you. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So one, got to back up, because I'm assuming you're roughly in high school when the Calgary Flames win the Stanley Cup. Yes. How strong was the mustache game because of Lanny McDonald? Okay. So Did you have kids were... in high school trying to grow big, big mustaches? Well, so I, you know what? I don't remember anyone in high school growing a mustache. I don't even know if they were capable. <laughs> right. I think it was very not. But I remember the day, the day after they won the Stanley Cup, we were given the day off school so we could go to the parade. We were given the day off school to go to the parade and everyone got these mustaches on an elastic for Lanny McDonald to wear awesome to the parade. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now, now I got to move into some more controversial Canadian stuff. Okay. Uh, friend, a friend of mine who grew up in Quebec claims there's no good poutine outside of Quebec. True or false? Totally agree. 
100 and you know what anyone oh, oh the poutine thing drives me insane because i i lived in montreal for i went to mcgill for uh just that's my name dropping i went to mcgill uh i went to mcgill for university so i lived in montreal and what is poutine is poutine something that you eat for dinner no is poutine something that you have at lunch absolutely not poutine is something that it's a it's a bad choice that you make around 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. when you've been out uh, on the town having a good time and you get to a point where you you need to make some decisions about the rest of your evening and it, you're like are we going this way or do we just need a lot of carbs and cheese <laughs> and the carbs and cheese by the way is the right choice always the other choice that you think you're gonna make is wrong uh, and then that's when it is perfect and it is the most delicious and it makes perfect sense. But all and all of these like poutine abstractions from just the cheese curds and the gravy are, are abominations. I don't want to see ten. I don't want to see like spices on. I don't want to see chicken. Oh, my goodness. What are you doing? I don't want I do not want artisanal poutine. No, you don't want somebody's interpretation of. <laughs> Because, yeah, and so anytime someone's like, oh, we have to go to this place, like, I don't know where it was, so it was like, oh, I'm going to Detroit to a poutine restaurant. I was like, that is, no. Do you go to Cleveland for sushi? No, you don't. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, actually, my uh, this friend of mine, he did his undergrad at McGill. And then returned there a while, but he uh, had a research lab. He was a uh, he's a research scientist, and he just uh, recently he's done time in the states and Canada. But uh, I love I love talking all things Quebec. <laughs> we, you know, it's so funny how hardcore I feel about that. It makes me very happy that obviously your friend feels the same. Because sometimes I'm like, why am I so fired up about poutine? Let it go. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and thanks, uh, you know, I, I was going to say there's no wrong answer, but now that we're on the same side, there is a wrong answer. And when I've been in Toronto, I have people yeah. that claim that, uh, it, that that's a falsehood, uh, but you can't get good poutine outside of, of Quebec. All right, Again, would you go to Miami for a Philly cheese dog? Would you do that? Would you go to Miami for a Philly cheese? Like, there are just some things that it's right. like, no, no, no. Just go to where they do it and don't pretend that it's good over there. And do you do you look at it like, oh, that's kind of cute how they're, or is it just so wrong that it just it darkens your soul? Yeah, you well, I just, I just around. feel like, oh, yeah, I just feel like, oh, you'll just call anything poutine. So that you don't even understand what it is. Because, yeah, it's right. cultural appropriation of poutine. <laughs> uh, Letter Kenny, is it an accurate representation uh, uh, of uh, Western Canada? So funny. We were watching it last night. Uh, and I have not watched much of it. But uh, but it's been something really nice to watch, especially now. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't know anyone like that. I didn't know anyone like that. I didn't know, and I know a lot of the. I know a lot of the words they're using. So some of the the sort of slang and the verbiage like kind of hits me in this nostalgic place. And I I know some of the caricatures, but I didn't know anyone that was that witty. I didn't know anyone that was that quick. And I didn't really know that whole setup. But I love it, and it is uh, hilarious. And yeah, so it's, it's really like nothing else. It's so unique. 
and fast. Yeah. You know, we put it on, we watch it twice, and the second time around, we put it on with subtitles just so we can really <laughs> appreciate the script. Right, right. Yeah, it's great dialogue, <laughs> and it, yeah, it's just going back and forth so quickly. Oh, it's great. A friend of mine played, uh, he played college hockey at Michigan State, uh, but he he played in the juniors in, uh, in, uh, in Victoria. Uh, yeah, but he he always told me that uh, the the guys from Alberta terrified him on the ice. They, <laughs> they they were they were they were the big monsters. The rough, yeah, they were the rough ones. Yeah, I mean I can see that. I mean Alberta, it's a changed a lot since I grew up there. But I felt like uh, it was a little like it was rough. Like the idea, I think you know it's stereotypes. Here we go. Yeah. I think because it was such a natural resource place growing up and then there was obviously just huge oil industry so then there was also all this like new money brought in so right. you you had this like mixture of people that uh you know were were working very very hard and it was a lot of guys it was mostly men like the yeah. i think the population the discrepancy between men and women was like so so many more went men to uh women which actually Looking back, when I moved to New York and, and started dating here, it was the at the time it was the opposite. They said there was, you know, like eight women for every one guy. And so that's why dating in New York was so ridiculous, because guys felt like they had uh, so many choices. Uh, and I think I grew up uh, when I was like, you know, at the dating age and relationship mm -hmm. age in Calgary and didn't notice that it was so easy because the numbers on top of whatever else, then just the pure numbers in your favor. Right. <laughs> It, it, it's it's a buyer seller's market right that's right that's right i was like what do you mean it's hard to get someone to buy you a drink what why did, did you say no what's i don't get it <laughs> thank you uh thanks for indulging me on some some canadian perspectives what uh Love it. but talking about dating uh your, your book screw everyone uh sleeping my way to monogamy uh yeah Actually, this is a transition one because I was a big fan of Kids in the Hall, and you oh, made a reference yeah. to uh, a lot of Daves. And do you, do you, these, and and when I was reading that, in my head was the Kids in the Hall. These are the Daves I know. That's right. All the songs. The song, and it's true though. I dated. I mean, I couldn't get away from dating someone named Dave. And sometimes, you know, it was like, well, do you? No one went by David. I think maybe now they would, but it, at the time, like everyone was Dave. Everyone was Dave and maybe a gorge like made him his way in there, but it was just, it was, I mean, there was something to that. There was something to that. Just everyone is, I feel like what is, the, there's not even an equivalent now. Is everyone Kyle? No. <laughs> I remember on my college floor when I was living in the dorms, we had so many Daves. They had, <laughs> they had to go by the the name of the city they were from. And then usually that was, then shortened to the first uh, syllable of the city they were from. And for the life of me, there's no way I could ever track down who were these guys because somebody was from Wilton, Iowa. So he just went by Wilt, but. Oh my goodness, it, that's amazing. It, it, Dave, somebody from Wilton is out there. <laughs> that's amazing, right? Uh, yeah, and then right, maybe they had a Welsh version of their name or maybe they, you know, because there was like, there's different right. possibilities, uh, French. Yeah. take but everyone just was dave oh, so 
in Montreal, you're there for school. Did did you start doing stand up while you were in college, or did I didn't? I was so afraid. Okay. Um, you know, I I actually I took um, I took cultural anthropology, which now I realize was very trendy, uh, but. At the time, it was, I mean, even in high school, I was, you know, a little clueless. I kept saying things. This is how, how much I wanted to get out of Calgary. I kept saying, uh, I just want to go to other places and learn about other cultures and peoples. What is that called? And people were like, anthropology. And I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, around the time that I, I actually ended up pursuing that particular discipline, uh, which I think is a place where it still sits right now, that discipline imploded because all of a sudden there was perspective that, oh, you know, it's ethnocentric to think that we are going to go into another culture and, you know, what is an ethnography? That is just a subjective travel journal from someone because how could we possibly think that we could see it from their eyes and what are we learning about it and colonialism and all the baggage. So the, the, my cultural anthropology degree ended up being more about like criticizing the discipline of cultural anthropology, which is good for critical thinking. I learned a lot yeah. about critical thinking and actually, and a lot about philosophy and theory and all and social systems, which ended up, so it ended up being a much more broader, uh, much broader education, I think, than what people maybe five years ago, like just when it was like Margaret Mead and uh, Claude Levi-Strauss and, you know, sort of the class. Maybe throw some C.S. Pierce in there to just. <laughs> right. Well, like we yeah. were much more like Edward Said, Nadine Gornimer, like just going down different, I mean, and stuff that yeah. I feel, um, yeah, was really, really challenging. And so I knew that I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. Ultimately, we all know the thing. You take some sort of liberal arts degree, a fine arts degree, a literature, it, whatever that is. And you are just the bane of everyone's comments of, you know, what are you going to do? What kind of job? Ha ha ha. You're going to be this. I mean, I think everyone that does stand up has at least five minutes on that unless they are. I used to right. be a lawyer, which is the other side of the stand. <laughs> yeah. Either all the stand ups. There's some that didn't go to college. There's a bunch that didn't got some sort of arts degree. And then there's people that left law. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. I, I started out as a double major in pre-dentistry and broadcast and film. See, that is that is a perfect double major. But I, I, I in more of it, I think it was just like trying trying to give my my parent like to to check my passport to let me leave was that there something somewhat serious seemed yeah on the horizon. So I, without the parental uh, pressure, I did something similar to you, which is I think third year of my cultural anthropology degree, where I was just you know I, I was like, do I want to be a lifelong academic? What can I really do with this? Uh, I realized that I was like, you know, I really, I want to do some, I didn't know what it was. I was like, I want to do some sort of performing or something. Like I knew there was this creative thing that I needed to get out there. I didn't know how. So I convinced McGill to let me do a double major of cultural anthropology and theater, but I had to write a thesis at the end that was going to talk about the, how these things match. Cause they had this interdisciplinary, it was a very yeah. uh, academic place and they had this interdisciplinary um, degree, a BA, an honors BA, where then you would get an advisor from each 
uh, faculty and they would help you sort of shepherd you through this thesis. So that's what I decided I would do. And the theater, I did end up in an acting class, but the theater I took was mostly, you know, uh, we're talking about the theory and we're reading plays and discussing them. It was a different thing, but it did set me on the path of like, huh, now I've like taken a tiny little step towards something that I'm interested in. I graduated from that and I moved to Vancouver just for a change of pace yeah. and to, uh, I didn't want to go to Calgary. I was too afraid to move to the United States. And so I moved to Vancouver. It was a very, a lot of Calgarians go to Vancouver for a little while. It was like almost a, a just a thing. Uh, a hilarious thing and so I was just like them and while I was in Vancouver uh, I, got, I had to get a job to support myself so I got a job at Kinko's <laughs> good old Kinko's <laughs> yeah I, which still sort of exists I guess in the corner of a FedEx uh, yeah, right. store <laughs> so but at the time you know at the time you know this just everything dates itself not everyone had a computer at home and so there was a whole bunch of computers there and people would go in to use the computers and also people the idea of having your own freelance business was a big deal and what did you need for your freelance business you needed business cards you needed flyers and you needed some sort of light graphic design and although i never went to school in computers when i was at mcgill i got a job in the computer lab there uh because i needed a computer and i didn't want to pay for it so I got a job in the computer lab there and did I know anything about IT stuff? No, but everyone was nice and was willing to teach me. And so I just kind of picked up enough. And so that I worked in the computer lab at Kinko's and, you know, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I found myself going through some people like everyone that working at was working at Kinko's this wasn't their lifelong idea of a job. So the, some people were artists, some people were writers, some people were in between uh, maybe going to graduate school. Uh, and I feel like it was my first, we were all about the same age. It was my first kind of like, oh, all these people are trying to figure out what they want to do. What do I want to do? So I went to a stand-up comedy workshop. I found this stand-up comedy workshop and I went to it. Right on. <sighs> And that was the beginning of the end, my friend. Do you ever get to make it up to Whistler while you were there? Yeah, a couple times. And actually, I even, I think, I think I could probably even find a flyer somewhere in my stuff. Uh, did a show, you know, as an amateur, as a newbie. But there was a lot of people in Vancouver who, like all the aspiring comics, it was all people of different ages and from different places. It wasn't like we were all, you know, 25 or all. Right. All kinds of different people that were discovering that they might want to do stand-up. And someone had a line to, like, someone that owned a restaurant in Whistler. And so we all trekked up there to do our five minutes at, like, a, sh a little Purdue show in the out door whatever ski apres ski yeah. area they had uh i can't even i mean it was you know we i think we got paid 20 bucks which was amazing everyone there could have you know easily just lost 20 dollars and <laughs> wouldn't have noticed it right because right. it's such a wealthy place yeah <laughs> so um your some of your 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 comment so you started you've you've produced comedy albums, comedy specials, uh, 
I think one of the ones that I, I really appreciate is Inside Joke. So that must be oh, what, roughly five, six years ago? <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it's going to be like, yeah, like, right, right. It's basically, uh, yeah, six years ago, almost on the dot. Okay. Uh, um, because, yeah, I did it, I did it, as it turns out, two weeks before I had a child. <laughs> <laughs> have you now do you, do you so, go back and listen to your albums at all i'm not i'm just kind of curious from like creative perspective is there more there that you might want to work with material or is it i'm i'm done i keep going going forward i mean right so the general idea you know and i i did listen to them not so long ago because it's been a while since i've done another album or special and i was of course yeah. as everyone has has something like this i had one that i was ready to do on april 6th of 2020 so we can imagine how that yeah. went down so we'll find a new date for that whenever right. uh yeah so whatever whatever we're all vaccinated and safe we'll do our album. So, um, but then because I was working towards that, I did go back and listen to some stuff mostly to be like, you know, just to make sure that, did I do this material? Cause sometimes you have a piece of material and you'll throw it out there, yeah. uh, in some sort of form. Uh, but maybe you've since worked on it and maybe you changed it. The general idea with stuff that's out there is that you don't repeat it. You don't, I, especially if something's on television, but even an album, it's just like, that's done. Yeah. So that's done. But I feel more and more people are like, but is it done? You know, like, why are there all these hard and fast rules? I mean, it makes perfect sense. Why would anyone want to hear the same routine again? Absolutely. Live is one thing, but yeah. on a, a recorded thing. So in general, it's over, but sometimes I, I'll, I'll listen to it. I hate listening to myself. I hate it. It's a chore. I have to build up a lot of self-esteem to press play and listen to myself. I don't like it, uh, but sometimes you have to. And I think that every time I do, it is such a valuable uh, teaching uh, method for what needs to be improved or what could change or what was good. Uh, it's staggering how fast you learn from listening to yourself, but I really dislike it. I yeah. really, really dislike it. Uh, and I know some people just won't even bother. They're just like, no, I hate it. I will never do it. And some people love it. Those are the people I find the most curious. Really? You love it? <laughs> What's that like? I'm so far. I will never get to that point ever. As an anxious Midwesterner with a, uh, like one of my superpowers probably is my inner critic. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I look at those people. And I'm like, how, why? How? how how? Uh, yeah. And so I do think there's merit to going back and listening because I do, you just hear, you have to get over just hating and beating yourself up and wondering why it couldn't be better. And then once you sort of get by past that, you're like, well, that's good. That's interesting. Oh, I said it that way. That was the better way. Or, you know, oh, I should, yeah. and now I say it like this. That's the better way. Yeah. Thanks. Because a, a, a couple of, and one, I was curious because, um, probably about six months ago on the podcast, I had, uh, had interviewed Dave Hill, right? And yeah. so comedian and musician, and I'm just kind of struck by the, I don't know, dichotomy of music for fans. Like fans at a concert will get frustrated if they don't hear a classic or a favorite. Absolutely. 
But then, it's like the joke, right? If someone's yeah. like, here's my originals. You're like, no, I did not buy a, a ticket to originals. I want the greatest hits and I don't have to, I don't want to wait for the encore for it. But it seems like in comedy, it's almost the opposite that um, it's, is it, is it bad form that, hey, this was delivered before, but I, there are certain stories, certain jokes that I think are so great that it is worth hearing again. And I was just kind of curious on your thoughts about that dichotomy, if it exists or like if I'm just out to lunch. Yeah, no, it totally exists. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, I think that there's a couple things over the years that I've learned because I, I think I used to, uh, and I, this is not a humble brag, but I used to change up my set to a fault to where I didn't, I don't even know, because I was so hyper aware, like oh, this one person in the crowd has heard this before. Oh no, uh, <laughs> I can't do it again. And a, I always quote this comic, Canadian comic, in Toronto that I remember he said to me, Ophira, it's called a routine for a reason. So there's just the pure fact that yeah. you have to, because uh, a musician can re rehearse, they can practice in their room right. until, you know, with the hope that they're getting better and better and better and better. Uh, but stand up, you just can't practice. You just, uh, it doesn't matter how many times, I mean, I can get the words right, like I can make sure I'm saying the actual words, but yeah. I just can't practice of how that's going to feel on the stage. What's the reaction going to be? You know, what, what the, there's so many things that just need to be there. So you have to repeat it over and over and over and over again from an audience point of view. Yeah. They want new stuff all the time, but I've also noticed that audience retention is very small. <laughs> it's very small. So, the amount of times that I have gone on stage and then beat myself up afterwards for being like, well, I did some new jokes, but I also did a lot of old stuff. Oh, well, like I hope. And then someone will come up to me and be like, oh, I really, oh, I love that bit that you did. Da, da, da. I haven't heard that before. And it is the oldest right, of the bits. Right, right. And then you just go, oh, like, I don't know. This is all in my head. So I do think in a recorded thing, like you should adhere to the idea of like, this is a new thing. Get, you know, and that's what it's there for. It should be a goal at the end of like work, honing a set over the course yeah. of time and throwing it out there. But I think in between while, while you're basically, you know, it's just that there's, there's no pattern. So it should be like, you're working out at the gym, you're working out at the gym, you're working out at the gym, you run the race yeah, and the race is your product. Uh, but you know, obviously it would be great if we all had the economics to have that linear path. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit? So I, uh, a couple, uh, sorry, a couple things here. Uh, one is uh, your comedy specials, uh, right? And like, if you go to Amazon, right? The, some of the individual labeled explicit, right? Oh yeah. Sure. And then you have ask me another. Yeah. Which is, you know, family friendly for lack of a better totally. like, how how hard is it to to not either like drop an f-bomb or take take something on the show into into an area that that would earn ex, an explicit i don't mean this judgmentally yeah. but just like yeah yeah no i mean it's but they're they're so totally two different things because there's two different expectations so actually it is not hard uh, i mean over the course of there's just tendencies that you get into so from working in comedy clubs for so long and even late night shows 
you know, I'm talking about a time that just does has not existed a long time. So it feels like I'm talking about years ago when we would gather in basements uh, that um, I felt, you know, I'll just be honest. I felt like for better or worse, as a woman on stage battling through um, whatever the preconceived notions of whether people were, wanted to see a woman on stage or not yeah. and establishing authority and um, coming off as like extra strong and extra gruff because that's a way to establish authority uh, through drunken crowds that, you know, were wherever they were in their moment at 12 midnight at a club one thing that works was swearing like i would just yeah. it would just kind of get some edges around all the stuff that i was saying is that like and going I, into alpha mode almost that kind of uh, yeah yeah crowd absolutely. crowd i'm more i'm working you remember that That's right, right. Ra rather and than I'm this tough. is a collaboration <laughs> and i'm tough and i'm not yeah. vulnerable and like and and a little bit of literally like go f yourself like that's yeah. what i'm saying to them like i'm in control this is my platform awesome so and i got used to it and then you just get used to it it becomes like that mean I it's coming out of your mouth all the time and I kind of like curse words anyways. So I'm predisposed. Yes, I feel like yes. there's a good place. But then, you know, between all kinds of things, you want things on television, you want things accessible. Um, you know, they can be a crutch. They can be a real crutch. So then there was how do I have all of that um, I guess a vibrato, but without having to curse. So that's one thing just in the sense of a club. Mm -hmm. Ask me another was a totally different product and expectation. So there was no expectation that I had to kind of like win over. There wasn't like that thing about like, oh, you're going to be going out there for battle and you have to win this crowd that wants nothing to do with you. Right. That's part of where the that. Yeah. So I didn't have to do that. So it became very different. And it is and, an NPR crowd, right? And it's an NPR crowd. <laughs> and just the, the humor is different, too, because it is not, you know, Right now, most of our contestants are celebrities. They used to be just regular people who were just very smart and, yeah. and they could do all kinds of feats almost of, of word games and stuff. So, but still the same thing. I have to kind of take care of these people because they're on the spot. Mm -hmm. They're actually on the spot way more than I'm on the spot. So it's a reversal. Uh, and so I don't, it's not my style to be critical or put people down anyways, but I actually have to do something else, which is I have to lift them up and make sure they're comfortable and encouraged so they can feel good about playing these games and maybe not getting the right answer and still feel like it's fun. Well, you deliver and such positive, supportive energy there and that. <laughs> yeah. So, and I really appreciate that because I was, and, uh, I, I really appreciate the framing in the background too, because uh, like some of your comedy specials, you're not you're not here to make people necessarily feel comfortable or uplift them. These are these are stories and and perspectives you're sharing. Yeah, and it's just not the expectation for me to say like I, I right. It's just maybe a storytelling stage is a little bit different because there's a different expectation there too. There's yeah. an expectation that people are there to listen for a longer amount of time and that they have already agreed that this is a story. I I want to be taken on a journey, you know? And I'm not expecting like three if a laugh doesn't come every 30 seconds, I'm not gonna be like, well, this is not what I signed up for, or they're not gonna expect that the jokes are about them or like the materials about right. them. I mean, every story 
someone I was doing a workshop recently and, and someone did ask like what if my story uh, is about something that I don't think anyone else has experienced and I was like there's no such story as that because if, of course no one is going to experience your life but it's the it's the emotions behind it that are right. are the what we share as humans that and that's the craft of the storyteller to put that out Thanks. And speaking of storytelling, um, I was in, uh, you had joined Peter uh, for Dave Gould's uh, life design. Uh, yes. Alumni course that he was doing. And uh, one, I just want, I loved your story. I found it really powerful and I, and emotionally it caught me off guard uh, because it was just, wasn't sure where it was going. And uh, <laughs> the emotion, the emotional payload was huge. So one uh, just, I thought it was a great story. And, and just thank you. Yeah. And you already, you were starting to get there, but talking about those differences uh, in context, right? When you're, you have, you have storytelling, you have ask me another and you have uh, your, your writing and performance. Uh, but do you mind walking me through maybe a little bit of your kind of creative process? Like when you're sitting down thinking about a story, are you, are you kind of mapping out like a point of view or an yeah. arc? So yes, yes I am. Uh, you know, I often, so with that story, they're all a little bit different, but you know, with that story, or I think um, other stories that I've told that are about like bigger challenges or more traumatic events, mm -hmm. it starts a little bit when I'm actually going through it and I'm not going through it you know, thinking like this will make a great story one day because I wish I had enough distance to be able to do that when I was going through something painful, but I don't. What I, what I do do though is that I always say I'm a sucker for a happy ending. I'm a sucker for a happy ending. And so when I'm going through something painful, maybe this is a coping me mechanism. I often think, well, what's a happy ending to this? What to me would be a happy ending? Uh, and I start thinking about that. And then I think about what it would be like to say that as the end of the story, whenever it is, I'm ready to tell it. And by kind of figuring out that part, <laughs> yeah. then it ends up being like a goal for, right. you know, but I, I also will say every, every story can have a happy ending or a sad ending, a story you're crafting, mm -hmm. not a story because the craft of the story is you get to decide as the storyteller when it ends. So where you put the ending in your timeline kind of dictates the story. So once I have the ending, I, I know that I kind of, that's where I'm trying to get to. Uh, and then, you know, then it just becomes about, you know, I, now I'm really just speaking to like yeah. the more, uh, intense stories like yeah. then it comes to like when I can tell this that it doesn't feel like therapy or that right. it's too raw and I'm still working through it I think emotions at any time are great if someone has a emotional which I often do m moment in their story I think that's great that means you're really present in your story you should it's natural it's human uh, but you do have to have some distance to be able to tell things without feeling like you are still like living it in a way that is excruciating. Yeah. So, and then, you know, so then it just becomes backing it up, writing it all. Uh, usually it's way too long. 
and then you know you have to you have to have enough perspective to go and be like okay what's what's important now i'm going to edit my story yeah. and i'm going to i'm going to cut i'm going to cut like 60% of it out and figure out like what are the key points and and hopefully you know too I'll throw it by someone that I know and they can be like well I I don't understand this part or but when you did when this thing happened like can you tell me about what more of what how you felt about it so yeah it's that's the process I kind of you know with a painful story you definitely know the moment of change as we yeah. say in storytelling which is you know what your challenge is you know what your moment of change is um, so you need a strong beginning and then everything is just leading, uh, you know, then it's just basically dressing around it. Thank you. Yeah. Cause I, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, uh, storytelling as an important way to share information. I mean, that's how humans are wired, right? We, we remember stories more than we remember like elements of a spreadsheet, right? So totally. just that component. And now I've also been wondering about, and, and so what you were talking about, just I'll throw this out there to get your reaction. I've been wondering about people telling their story as a form of agency in order to maybe take oh, more control 100%. over their, their life. And like you said, it's, it's your story. You can, you can choose what you tell you can, and you can choose where it ends. And I just wonder when people are struggling, if that might be a powerful tool for them is their own personal narrative and ways to not only process, but how, how they want to present it. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think owning, I mean, that's, you know, I, I fully admit, I think that's a huge part of why I like doing it is because, uh, and you know, the product that I'm throwing out there as a story and I'm calling it a product because it, it should be an art form. It shouldn't yeah. be a journal entry. Uh, and it shouldn't be something that you would, you know, tell a, a very close friend, over a drink. It should be another level of that. It really, sh I mean, that I truly believe that. I like raw stuff too, that just feel like you can still have the feeling of like, yeah. I was just, it was so intimate, it was just me and them. But the craft of the storyteller is taking this information and putting it through like, this is my voice. I get to control the narrative. I get to control the timeline. I am, and you cannot tell all the events that right. happened around this one thing. You're going to pick them. You're going to pick yep. the events that serve the story. Thank you. Um, and kind of uh, shifting gears a little bit, but it, going back to your 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 book, uh, one of the, one of the lines you had in there that uh, was dating's one one percent confidence, ninety nine percent troubleshooting. Can you <laughs> yeah. tell me a little bit more about that? That really stood out to me, but I. I guess I'm more interested in the 99% part <laughs> of troubleshooting and yeah. my dating life. Right. Yeah. You know, I guess, um, I guess my general perspective, when I was dating and man, it seems a long time ago <laughs> yeah. right now, but my general perspective was, uh, that of adventure, I would say adventure. Like I wanted things to be fun. I think when I was dating, um, I really didn't, I wasn't hooked on the idea of finding the one. I, I wasn't interested particularly in marriage. Uh, right. You know, I, I like the idea of falling in love, of course. 
but I wasn't sort of like, I'm, I'm going to find my soulmate. I didn't even know if that was like a real thing. I was very skeptical about that idea. So I was more like, I think everyone has something to offer or uh, many people, not everyone, but yeah. many people have something to offer. And what do I know? I, I will also say, I don't think I knew a lot about myself. And sometimes I learned a, a lot about who I was, my identity and myself through the people I decided to share my time with. Uh, but, you know, humans are intrinsically complicated. So maybe I would go in again with all these ideas, like we're going to have an adventure, we're going to have fun. And then you are faced with a person that is like unbelievably complicated and has their own <laughs> ideas uh, and their own impulses and what right, they want to right. do. And yep. yeah, so it would be, uh, sometimes I would be like, wow, this is, this is a lot to deal with. Can I deal with this? Yeah. So it just constantly felt like more I was being given problems and I had to decide if I wanted to troubleshoot them and find a solution or decide that or, or we just, should just it, yeah. unplug it, unplug right. it and walk away. Thank you. Yeah. And when you were just saying that, it feels like a long, a long time ago. And we were talking about storytelling as well, just kind of combining it with my, my wife and I, when, when now when we're invited out to go to things, uh, our our philosophy now is at worst we'll get a story out of it. It might be <laughs> it might be good or bad, but now that's just the lens we're putting on, like going to like an absurd cocktail party or <laughs> or something. Yeah. It's just looking for the stories in it ra rather than uh, is this going to be a fun time or a bad. It's we'll we'll process that later. <laughs> Right, right. No, and I feel like the the ones that you end up being like less that are less worthwhile are the ones where you're like, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> like there was no story, nothing really happened. It was fine. I guess I talked to some people. I don't know. <laughs> That's the uh, worst. <laughs> Want to ask? And and one of the themes I explore with guests is the notion of advice, and it it can go all over because you know sometimes it's it's mentorship, like maybe early in our career. Uh, you know, and and sometimes it's it's an it's it's the wise elder, but we're we're too young uh, that we we don't understand the like the wisdom that was packed into their delivery. It just sounded like something weird, but if you get older, you unpack it. Other times, uh, might be like I'm stealing from Austin Cleon. When we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Uh, sure. So I I don't know either either or both uh, directions. But if you have any advice for uh, folks listening to the podcast on what's really stuck with you uh, in your journey or advice you would have given your younger self? Yeah. Well, one thing is I, I never had a mentor, like just the, in that sort of way. I'm still, as a matter of fact, I'm still looking for yeah. someone. If anyone out there wants to be my mentor, please <laughs> let me know. I'm open. I've always been curious about how I always have, I've always wanted that. Uh, and then as you get older, it's not like to say that as you get older, you can't have a mentor because it's not really age specific, but the general idea is like someone shepherded me when I was young, um, which I, I didn't necessarily have. I feel like I have little pops of little things that people have said to me, whether they meant it to be advice just based for me or not over the years that I have certainly remembered. And one thing, you know, in terms of what do you wish you would have known earlier, this was like basically when I was starting stand up and, or even just getting more serious about it and looking for, um, you know, the external representation that this is what I should be doing. And I was really good at focusing 
on everyone that said no and everyone that said not for us and everyone that said like not good enough you know because there, there's so much of that but there were people that were saying come over here or i don't know i kind of like that and i it took me a long time to go that is totally valid and just go towards them like go towards the people that are saying yes and supporting you and stop thinking just because they said yes they're not of value like that's what i did i yeah. thought everyone that said yes to me was not value of value and everyone that said no to me was of value and that is that took it, it just added on so much more time where i could have been really being encouraged and moving forward instead of just beating myself up and being paralyzed but it, you know it just takes yeah. a lot of it takes some of us it takes a lot of strength to be able to do that to be able to travel towards the yes the nice stuff oh save so much time and anguish uh so you know and i do think it's not like anyone who is critical doesn't have anything to say but especially in the beginning i think most of us thrive in encouraging supportive environments that's where we start to be able to feel free enough to create yeah yeah it um uh so i lived in minneapolis for about 15 years and brave new workshop was the kind of improv delivery training house up yeah. there and John Sweeney, who um, he and his wife bought it from uh, the, the original owner. Uh, but when they were doing improv theater in the 50s, one of, one of the themes was trying to make a safe haven for the freaks. And uh, I just love, I love that idea. And just, you know, like, here's a safe place for the creatives, especially in the 50s, you know, how like any creative venture seemed like you were already an outsider and and then creating a, an inviting environment to to celebrate that a safe place to practice yeah and you know i say it like oh i wish i gave that advice to my earlier self now you know with ask me another i have the opportunity to interview just tons of actors and celebrities yeah and often often in conversation with them and i can think most clearly right now even though it's been said many times by many different people but as a uh, specific example, Sarah Paulson, who I love, actor Sarah Paulson, uh, who has been in, if you're a fan of American Horror Story, she's been in, you know, whatever it is, six seasons of that right. or something. And, you know, we ended up talking something about like, kind of, you know, what is it about that project that you keep coming for more? And she said something that has been iterated over and over again by these people. She said, this particular director put me in a situation where I felt like my ideas were worthy, where I was encouraged and created this space for me to experiment like I have never experimented with my talents before and brought out of me stuff that I was not expecting. You know, so this, it doesn't matter. In the beginning, I think it's, it's crucial. But even as we go on, I feel like anyone who is like this, why was this project good? Why was this thing amazing? It's the same elements. Thank you. Yeah. And my, so my day job is uh, I focus on design innovation space and with teams uh, and there's more and more, uh, I feel better. There's more and more uh, research coming out of this, but the idea of creating a psychologically safe space for the participants in the, the team or ensemble, you're when people can bring their authentic self, Right. Yes. And, and, and those ideas is heard. Yes. Those ideas are exchanged. Uh, 
Uh, we're, we're seeing more good good work, lots of work still needs to be done, but also diversity, equity, and inclusion, with the, the inclusion being a big important part that it, it's not just you're in the room, it's you're included, you're at the table, but all kinds of diversity, including cognitive diversity, are also showing uh, more, more innovation, <laughs> solving problems faster. And so I, I've just seen it in a theme in so many different disciplines that just that, that idea of psychological safety and, and your Sarah Paulson example made me think too, it's feeling safe enough also to stretch, right? It's not, totally. it's not just, it's, it's not safety that nothing's going to harm or I'm not going to feel discomfort, but it's so safe that you can take Experiment. that risk. Yes. Next, yeah. yeah. And I think, and that's the only way you get better. We're all told right. endlessly as creatives, like you got to take risks. You got to push yourself, like, uh, you know, allow yourself to be ugly, allow yourself like all of this stuff. But, but you actually need to be in an environment where you're not going to get slapped down for that or judged. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ophira, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. An absolute, uh, pleasure. Uh, I guess before we go to one thing I forgot to bring up with ask me another is a fairly recent episode I believe it was mask me another episode but uh, <laughs> yeah uh, whoever whoever on your team is responsible for this if you can just tell them thanks but there was there there was a music bit based on uh, basically non musical instruments and there was a dot matrix printer that <laughs> yes. And yes. uh, our family absolutely loved it. I don't know why, it, but it, 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 all of us, as we were listening, just it, it triggered this like giggle that was just uh, right. so Right, we warm, had uh, so. popular songs that people had played on non-traditional instruments to the point of like, like people were, there was one on different squashes, uh, but there was a dot matrix printer. Yeah. And yeah, if you know that sound, uh, you, it's like, it's unmistakable. Right, right. My, my, my kids don't know. And, and I wasn't going to bore them with when I was Tearing in college. Off the edges. Yeah, you need you needed to plan another half hour to an hour just to print your paper. Like if you were running late, and you had to get a paper into class. Yeah, totally. That's right. That's right. So uh, again, thank you. And uh, yeah, if you don't mind just sharing unsolicited feedback of uh, positivity and thanks to the Ask Me Another uh, will. team. That's so nice. <laughs> That's so nice. I definitely will. They'll, 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 we need to create, you know, we're creating in a supportive environment there too. So I'll be right. like, you know, what's great, more experimental music games, which are fun. I got to say. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's going to mean a lot when they, they hear, you know, some, some quarantine family in the, in a flyover state is getting the giggles from it, but. That's, it is important. That is, that is, that is exactly who it's for. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure, Matt. Thank you.